The word of the week is ketamine. EMS is in the spotlight for its pre-hospital use, for the circumstances that lead up to its use, as well as the clinical outcomes for those in receipt. A pretty hot topic. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Ketamine. Two cases in Colorado brought the situation into critical focus, initially with the administration of two doses of ketamine totaling 750 milligrams by Colorado-based South Metro Fire Rescue Medics in August 2019. The patient, Elijah Knight, was allegedly intoxicated, struggled with a sheriff's deputy, was tasered, handcuffed and subdued by three people. Identifying the patient was experiencing excited delirium, the attending medics administered one 500mg dose of ketamine and another dose of 250mg about nine minutes later after consulting with a physician. Clinically, and by Colorado protocols, so far so good. EMS providers in Colorado are permitted to administer ketamine under Emergency Medical Practice Advisory Council waiver guidance. The story elevated to front page level as body camera footage identified that deputies asked if the medics could give him anything, to which the medic replied they can give him ketamine and he'll be sleeping like a baby, but would need to be transported. Another case occurred just last month where another Colorado arrestee, Elijah McLean, was administered ketamine, went into cardiac arrest and was subsequently declared brain dead and died on August the 30th. The timing of these cases has created a national media story, considerable litigation and investigation into ketamine administrative practices by the State Department of Health and Environment and a call to ban the use of the drug on excited delirium patients by the mayor of the city of Aurora, Colorado. As the issues are still unfolding, I called up Dr. Craig Manifold to help me unpack the issues and the takeaways. A well-known eagle, Dr. Manifold, is an emergency physician with both military and civilian experience of ketamine administration. He noted that ketamine is a very safe medication when used appropriately and under the oversight of an EMS physician. He said, my experience comes from utilising it not only in the emergency department but in the field as a military physician and have had truly wonderful experiences with it. It has been extremely valuable to our patients and in multiple benefits that go along with its utilisation. He told me, before we were seeing patients on cocaine and methamphetamine and now we can manage those patients more efficiently and effectively and immediately move those patients into medical care and transport to the hospital. Dr. Manifold highlighted that in informal discussions with EMS medical directors, there is an indication that there has been less death since the incorporation of ketamine for these patients who are involved in these type of scenarios. First up, paramedics and police. Much discussion has involved the on-scene scenario where police invite the medic to just give him or her something. In situations where this direction may have occurred, there is possibly a degree of peer group pressure to conform with a request for sedation based on a non-clinical lay opinion. 
The overarching requirement is to provide appropriate clinical care while considering the safety of both the patient and those on scene. Dr Manifold agrees. He says it's not a law enforcement decision, but it certainly is the medical provider's responsibility to utilise the medication effectively and safely. Part of that does include input from officers, bystanders, family members and others involved in these scenarios. It's very clear when the paramedic arrives on scene, a rapid decision must be made on the treatment and transport of the patient as well as the safety of the scene for all those in it. This element can and has been armchair quarterbacked after the fact. The advent of body-worn cameras has added clarity to the decision-making process in review, but also in a few massively promoted cases laid certain on-scene members open to scrutiny, criticism and litigation. Next up, policy and quality. In the light of the current focus on the use of ketamine in the treatment of excited delirium, it is possibly a good time to examine existing clinical protocols and waivers to ensure they are up to date and the necessary education and training has been delivered. Is the administration of ketamine an immediate flag for QAQI? Is it passed to the medical director for review? Do we wish to debrief other agencies and partners involved in a hot wash, after action report or lessons identified session? All may be a good idea. Third up, practice and partnerships. Let's face it, the police have a hell of a job to do on the streets and additional stress and operational pressure of COVID-19 and civil unrest hasn't made it any easier. Elsewhere in the EMS news sphere, there are suits taking place against employers by staff members who have been disciplined for not following instructions of law enforcement when on the scene, so this matter is a very delicate one. The discussion into policies, waivers and protocols should not actually take place on that dark and stormy night on the ground. A protocol that requires an invasive procedure while the patient is subdued should be discussed clearly and early with uh, potential law enforcement and other public safety partners. Dr Manifold believes that the time for discussions is not in the field. The policies and procedures and the interactions between the medics and law enforcement officers make for a great opportunity for case-based scenarios, doing what-ifs, doing uh, how do we take care of these individuals, working out what is appropriate, working out how we transfer the care of the individual to the medical team. Lots of factors go into this, he told me. Just because we give a medication, it doesn't mean the arresting officer is no longer involved and it's the function of leadership to discuss, determine and, if necessary, exercise these actions. Fourth point, data exchange on pre-hospital ketamine use. Data is an essential element to demonstrating the worth and effectiveness of pre-hospital ketamine administration and this further highlights the need for bi-directional data between EMS agency and hospitals to identify outcomes for QAQI and performance improvement. As Dr Manifold observed, we have to look at our utilisation of ketamine. This is a relatively new introduction to our profession over the last five to ten years and we're going to see an increase in its usage and it's a natural evolution in people adopting and using it. Ketamine is used for multiple processes, such as analgesia, not just for sedation management, and procedural components such as rapid sequence intubation, RSI. So there are many factors, such as differences in dosing to look at. Fifth, clinically qualified investigations and direct experience. In 2020, no one, 
in the US is immune to politics, and it's just as pervasive as COVID-19. Where investigations take place, those undertaking them must be clinically qualified to comment on actions and activities. They must have direct experience of field provision of ketamine and the environment and circumstances in which this drug is employed. All must resist the ready, fire, aim approach that sometimes takes place in these scenarios. While we acknowledge there may be many bad actors in any profession, facts, data and outcome must cast the vote and not the opinion of laypersons or search engine operatives. So that was my spoken word in this week's One Stop column, but uh, as a delightful extra, I'm really excited to welcome uh, the person that helped me write that column, uh, Dr. Craig Manifold. Dr. Manifold, how are you doing? I'm doing great today, Rob. Thanks so much for inviting me. And thank you so much for helping me out to really kind of sort the wheat from the chaff, as they say, with this issue that's getting emotive and getting bigger in the media by the day by the look of it. It, it is. It's certainly grabbing a lot of attention in the, in the lay public. Uh, and therefore, I think we're seeing that in the EMS environment uh, as well. Uh, but I think it's good for a conversation uh, about this. It brings some yeah. important topics to light. Well, in my narration, you just actually had an English accent because I read your words. So I don't know how you feel about that. But uh, let me ask a couple of the questions again. But uh, so how safe is ketamine? So I personally think ketamine is one of the safer uh, drugs that we have in our armamentarium in the EMS uh, and pre-hospital world. Uh, the, the margin of safety uh, regarding the, uh, the wide range of dosing uh, is really uh, a benefit uh, for it. It has a number of the pharmacologic and physiologic responses uh, that we want to see for the indications we use it. Uh, and so I think, again, that uh, ketamine uh, is one of the, the uh, well-versed medications uh, that is available to EMS providers at this time. So as a medical director of an organization, of course, as, and as an eagle, what is it that you want the providers to do? Because they're working, let's face it, on your ticket. So what are your expectations? So like, like with any of the uh, potential interventions and interactions we have with, with our patients, we want to provide excellent compassionate care. And we do that within the realm of uh, utilization that is appropriate for whatever therapy it is. And ketamine, uh, it can be a little bit confusing because we have different uh, dosages required for different indications, whether it's analgesia, pain control, if you will, uh, versus sedation or procedurally for a, a rapid sequence intubation. Uh, and those sorts of things. And so we have to be uh, aware of that uh, and minimize the confusion and then also recognize what our endpoints of treatment or therapy are. Uh, so with analgesia, we may not be uh, trying to uh, uh, provide somebody with a, uh, a altered level of consciousness, but really just being able to provide them with uh, some mild pain control as opposed to uh, sedation, excited delirium, uh, the severe agitated state uh, with patients uh, that is gotten in the news recently, uh, where there our goal may be to actually provide a primary uh, sedation piece so it's uh, safe for the individual, uh, the patient, and or the uh, provider that's on scene. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that because this is, as I say, in the news, we wrote about that, we acknowledge it, we're seeing those stories starting to come up. Um, one of the things, of course, that I like to do in my column is to really inform the EMS leader of what's going on, what the trends are, where we're going next. But my big concern here is that if this story continues to, 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 to rise and raise 
in its, uh, you know, in, in, in its visibility, eventually rescue squads all over the country, big and small, whether they have a PIO or not, are going to be getting the call from the local news reporter looking to expose or discuss or highlight or bring the local story to the to their community. And so if you don't mind, um, I'd like to take on the role of that TV reporter and I'd like you to do what you do so excellently and be the medical director. And uh, let's kind of, you know, rehearse this because I've got a funny feeling that this may well happen sometime soon. So how is, so, so I'm here talking to uh, Dr. Craig Manifold, who is the medical director of this, uh, of this rescue unit here. And so uh, how are your ambulance drivers really qualified and certified to give this dangerous drug on the street? Rob, I'm glad you asked that question for us. It's certainly getting a lot of attention uh, in the public media and scrutiny. Uh, one of the primary issues is that there is appropriate medical oversight uh, by a EMS or pre-hospital trained physician uh, who is implementing uh, the protocols or guidelines that the medics in the field will be using those, that those uh, protocols are appropriate for the, the treatment uh, that we are providing uh, in the patient scenarios or situations that we're involved in. And then the individual medic has an understanding of their uh, pharmacology principles. Uh, they're aware of the, the uh, guidelines that are placed regarding the dosages. They're using those uh, dosing uh, regimens appropriately. And then afterwards, that this may be a, uh, a process or a procedure uh, or a pharmacologic administration, drug administration, uh, that we wanna do additional review, what we call quality assurance or performance improvement, where we would go back and look after the event and assure that it was utilized appropriately uh, and uh, make sure that our agency and our individuals uh, uh, have good uh, uh, insight uh, into that and we can look at it from a trend basis, watching out for any uh, concerns that may be uh, presented from adverse uh, reactions and things such as that. When I look at all these body camera, body camera footages that are out there, doctor, it seems that the, the medic is just taking his instructions from the cop. Is that the case? So, uh, you know, obviously I don't have the insight to the individual cases that are out there. And I think that the uh, video capability, uh, the body monitors uh, add a new dimension to that, that we're uh, still learning uh, how they're used appropriately. I'm a huge fan and advocate. Uh, in some of our agencies, we've uh, utilized the, the body cam footage uh, from a GoPro being placed on a monitor uh, to uh, currently some body cams, uh, much like the police officers use. And I think it's a wonderful quality assurance and uh, performance improvement review tool. Uh, but as you know, a lot of times that it doesn't give 100% of the picture, but it helps give uh, a opportunity for posts to do, uh, or individuals to do a post hoc review and can see what uh, transpired as part of the conversations uh, and as part of the actions that have taken place. And so it's part of the process. It's not the whole, whole piece to review. Well, it's, it's a dark and stormy night. It's out there. We can't see the full. We haven't been there whilst this incident was unfolding. We arrive on scene and within two minutes we're administering this. Uh, you know, how do they come to that decision so quickly? So I think the medics take in uh, a lot of information. Uh, they're trained to process that and uh, they, are, they are performing it within the guidance uh, and the training that's provided to them. And there are some scenarios that require rapid intervention, others where you may be able to get more history, uh, more information uh, as, you, as you make those decisions. And uh, that's where 
again, the training, uh, the oversight, the appropriate supervision is, is most important. And there are these scenarios, as you mentioned, where within two minutes, uh, we may be making those decisions. And, and oftentimes, in life-threatening or life-saving uh, situations, it may be even less than two minutes. It could be 15 to 30 seconds. If we see major bleeding, we know we need to put a tourniquet on right away as one of our first actions uh, and be able to stop that bleeding and potentially save someone's life. In these scenarios with uh, severe uh, agitated patients, uh, we're assessing uh, the information that we received before uh, we got on scene. Uh, it may have been from the dispatch protocols. It may have been from uh, communications from those on scene. Uh, we're looking at our initial assessment as we uh, uh, come on scene and enter the, the patient care area. Uh, and then as we may interview the individuals around and or the patient to make that determination. So a lot of information is processed very quickly uh, and we ask our medics in the street to make those decisions. So you're the guy in charge, doctor. So once they've been to their, that this one call and administered this drug, and they're on to the next uh, 911 call, how do you know about it? How do you get to find out that this actually happened even? So most agencies and uh, medical directors will have uh, a, a process in place for quality assurance review. And if that uh, call hits a trigger, uh, in other words, an event, a procedure that's performed, a medication that's administered. Uh, there may be a formal report that's generated on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, or quarterly basis uh, that people review. Uh, it may be a significant event uh, if there were, uh, uh, in, if there was engagement with law enforcement or other uh, outside entities that uh, the folks will review that. And typically it may be done uh, initially as a peer-to-peer -peer process. Uh, then there may be supervisory involvement and medical direction, uh, and then even some uh, oversight or advisory board involvement, depending on the level and the degree that comes out there. But the, the most important part of that, in my mind, is that uh, there is a systemic or a systematic review uh, of those procedures and processes to assure the safety uh, and uh, ongoing uh, environmental change. And, and our practices change over months and years that uh, one procedure or therapy may be effective uh, in 19 or in, in the year 2015, uh, but it may not be uh, as effective or there may be a better option available in 2020. So those are some of the areas and reasons that we want to have uh, performance improvement and quality assurance reviews. So doctor, clearly there's going to be an investigation into what just happened and there's going to be people making judgments uh, on not only the drug, but also the, the individual, the organization, and even you. So uh, what do you say to those people that are charged with investigating situations such as this? The, the complexity is, is we, don't, uh, we want to minimize the reactionary component to it. We want to make sure that, uh, again, things uh, were administered, uh, or at least the approach that I have, is that we'll make sure that things were done uh, within the appropriate or the current guidelines, processes, and policies, and, uh, and that the appropriate training was in place. And then if those conditions are met and we still see a level of concern or reason, then we want to look at it again from a uh, systematic uh, portion. And do we need to make changes in our system? Again, is there a better option? Uh, are there additional therapies that may be involved? Uh, and those sorts of things that, that come about. And so, again, I, a uh, sophisticated uh, process that we make look pretty easy on a day-to-day -day basis, but we are uh, continually striving to make those improvements as needed. Dr. Craig Manifold, thank you very much. I've been Rob Lawrence on your side for Not the BBC News. Uh, 
thank you for doing that. Uh, hopefully, if we can prepare one organization to deal with this, then we've achieved something today. Well, I certainly agree, Rob. I think that uh, the potential is out there. Uh, there's a, a, a need for uh, highlighting this, and I think it's a great time for agencies, uh, agency directors and medical directors to get together, particularly regarding ketamine, uh, review your current protocols, processes in place, uh, look at your quality assurance data. And then I, I also wanna put a plug in there, as you and I have talked extensively about, the need for being able to share data, right? Uh, and that is uh, in and among our, our pre-hospital uh, uh, agencies, but most importantly with the hospital, we need to identify what the patient's outcomes are and be able to get that feedback uh, back to the, uh, the uh, EMS agency. Five years ago, I might have believed that it was a technology issue. Today, the technology is there. It's more about permissions uh, and being able to uh, uh, get the uh, appropriate authorization to be able to share that information with patient-oriented outcomes from the hospital uh, back to the EMS agency. So thanks very much. I really appreciate all that you do for the, uh, the industry and the profession, Rob. So that was Dr. Craig Manifold, and I can't thank him enough. And uh, also, I hope that if the journalist comes calling and knocking round your department or door in the near future, we've perhaps given you a few lines to take and a perhaps a methodology to deal with any questioning that may come because of the practice of ketamine for excited delirium. That's about all for now. If you liked me having a guest on the end of my narration, let me know. We'll try and do more in the future. Uh, I guess this is called a podcast, not just a narration. Anyway, you can keep up with me on Twitter at UKRobL. Find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, bring Dr. Manifold to the show uh, to present my article for this week. So until next time, I've been Rob Lawrence and bye for now. <laughs>